Hello, Harvest. My name is uh, Chris Persons. I'm the pastor of discipleship um, here, and I have the privilege this morning, um, pumped up just to share what God's been teaching me in the Word uh, through studying this message. And I was thinking this week, man, Steve has one of the best jobs in the world. I think I have the best job, but he has one of the best jobs. Just uh, sit on a passage for like 15, 20 hours a week and just soak it in. I'm like, feel so spirit-led and filled and Man, what an awesome opportunity to do that. Um, I'm sure it's a grind, so continue to uh, uh, thank and appreciate our senior pastor for bringing the word each and every week. Um, it is um, a, a lot of fun, but I know it's the duty as well. It's a, it's, it's a weight. So um, turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. That's where we'll be here today. As Adam mentioned, uh, Thanksgiving is now... Uh, has passed, and this is a, a favorite time of the year for the person's household, and I think of even it's a favorite time of the year for my wife, Crystal. One of the things that she enjoys doing in between Thanksgiving and Christmas is uh, taping and recording those Hallmark Christmas movies, and uh, it's one of her favorite things to do. She doesn't have a lot of free time, but if she has a free moment, she's going to sit down and watch one of those uh, Hallmark Christmas movies. And one of my favorite things to do between Thanksgiving and Christmas is to sit down and make fun of Hallmark Christmas movies as she's watching them is actually what I like to do. And because uh, they're using the same actors, I'm like, wasn't this the same guy from last night? Why is he with this girl now? And just like, it always ends well, and it's the same set, just with different dec decorations and stuff. And they're so, well, I think they're cheesy, but, um, but I enjoy doing that, and she doesn't enjoy that part of uh, watching Hallmark Christmas movies. But those always have a happy ending. And uh, reality is, though, uh, life isn't always like that. Um, we're not always going to have the happy ending like those movies portray. And uh, no one is immune uh, from having a day when they just had enough. So we're in First uh, Kings chapter 19, and uh, we're going to look at Elijah, who was no different. Um, we think of Elijah in the New Testament. He's mentioned a couple different times in the New Testament, but... At one point, when Christ is uh, talking, and uh, they're trying to figure out who the Son of God is, um, Christ poses this question and says, well, who do you think I am to uh, these people? And they respond, well, you, we think you might be Elijah. Like, if, uh, if, if Christ was to come, and uh, you were mistaken, or he was mistaken for you, that's quite the compliment. Apparently, Elijah did a lot of things right, that the Son of God was mistaken to be him, right? So Elijah seems to be this superstar kind of spiritual leader. Even in the book of James, right? James um, is written by the half-brother of Jesus, just from a different father, right? And uh, he notes in there what a righteous prayer looks like in James chapter 5. And he says, you can have righteous prayer as well, just like Elijah had righteous prayers. Like he prayed that the rain would stop and the rain stopped, and he prayed that the rain would come back, and it came back. And it was all because his prayers were pleasing to the Lord. So Elijah, when we look at Elijah, we think, Man, that's uh, somebody that we would like to be like. We'd like to be him. He seems to be in tune to the Lord, walking in his ways. He seems to be blessed. But maybe not here in chapter 19. Here we find Elijah's in a really dark place, and the darkness is real. This is good for us to see because uh, I think we can easily get disheartening, disheartened at times because we think in our head, you know, like, Everything's going to go well, and we're very optimistic, and uh, things seem to go well for everyone else, so they're always going to go well for us as well, but that's not the case. Not everything does go perfect, and we can have a dark day at times, or a dark season. 
Are you going through uh, some days, or have you had some days where you felt like, I just had enough? Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, we just uh, pray that we enter in this times, Lord, that we have a hunger for your word. Lord, I came hungry on Thursday for Thanksgiving, and uh, man, I I can't left there full, still full this uh, even today from that. But Lord, we pray that we come with this same hunger, this same thirst uh, for you spiritually today from your word, Lord, that we would take the word that comes out of the, the Bible that you gave us, that we would suck on it and that we would uh, just get all the nutrition from it that we possibly can for our soul today, Lord. Help us to have open hearts and open minds. Give me the words to say, let it be spirit-led. We just pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. First Kings 19, starting in verse 1, it says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Now let me stop there, and I need to do a little flyover of 1 Kings 16, 17, 18 to just give you the backstory. We won't read it all, but I would encourage you to go back and read it because it's some amazing stories in there of how God continued to show up. But let me give you the flyover here just to give you a backdrop to chapter 19, right? So Ahab right now is the king of Israel. And it was said in 1 Kings chapter 16 that he was the wickedest king that they had so far. Right now they're about seven kings in. Uh, to the nation of Israel. There was Saul, then there's David, and there's Solomon, and then the kingdom split, north and south, right? And then there was Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and there's a couple more kings in there, and then finally we get to Ahab. And Ahab is known as the most wicked one so far, not the title that you don't necessarily want to be associated with. Scripture says that he provoked the, provoked the Lord and what he did, causing the Lord to be angry with him. He links up and partners with Queen uh, Jezebel, who is even wicked, wickeder than he is, it says in Scripture. They worship other gods, and primarily Baal. And they go to the point of um, creating temples to worship Baal in Israel, and they uh, anoint or, point or give prophets to this uh, Baal worship. And they built altars to sacrifice to Baal. And it was even noted that Jezebel um, not only helped establish all these Baal prophets and this false religion, but then she hated God, the true God, and hated the prophets of God to the point where she sought them out and that she killed them. And not so surprising, the Lord, the true God, was angry with uh, Jezebel and Ahab for their wickedness and where the nation of Israel was clearly wandering away from them. It says in uh, the Ten Commandments, right? You should not have no other gods before me, for I am a jealous God. So when we pursue other gods beside the one and true God that deserves all our worship and praise, it says he is jealous, and of course he's going to respond with anger. Therefore, God has a plan to deal with this wayward nation. If you look back at uh, verse 1, it said, Abraham had told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Well, we know uh, Elijah surely had done some things up to this point. In 1 Kings 17, we see that um, this was about three and a half years years earlier. Elijah shows up to King Ahab and just says, because of the wickedness of this nation and because they are following another god and because of your leadership, there's going to be a drought. God's going to punish the nation with a drought. And it said it, I'm, the, the rain's going to stop, and also there's not even going to be any dew. 
no moisture whatsoever. And this was a consequence for following false gods and slaughtering the prophets of the true God as well. During this time, God uh, provides for Elijah in miraculous ways, even through the drought for himself personally. And then we get to chapter 18, and there begins a showdown on Mount Carmel. Things are going bad for God's elect, uh, nation right now because of the drought, because they turned away to a different God. And then uh, Ah Elijah is coming up to Ahab, and when uh, Ahab sees Elijah coming, he says, oh, look at who's coming, the troubler of Israel. He doesn't address them by his name. He's just like, here comes the troubler of Israel. Elijah is like, uh, he's not going to take that. He's like, no, you're the one, King Ahab, who's allowed trouble to come upon Elijah. So as two guys are kind of like in this conflict of who's right, who's wrong, we know who's right. Elijah is the prophet of God, right? Who's causing trouble. Uh, they do what any guys would do, right? What do the guys do when they have a disagreement? They have a competition, right? Right, ladies? Like, let's arm wrestle. Let's, you know, arm wrestle. Let's do something to duke this out and figure out who's right. So they're at Mount Carmel and Elijah uh, suggests, he's like, let's have this little showdown to find out who's right, who's serving the right God. So Ahab gathers all the people of Israel as witnesses. He gathers his 450 prophets of Baal to Mount Carmel. And Elijah calls out to the people who are the witnesses, the audience, and says, you know, how long are you going to waver between two gods? Make a decision. And, and uh, the crowd is silent. Like, no one's going to answer that question, right? Um, Elijah then uh, says, let's bring in two bulls. Uh, let's build an altar and present it as an offering to our God. Um, the prophets of Baal will have one bowl, and I'll have the other bowl, and then we'll cry out to the heavens, we'll cry out to our God, and whoever responds with fire from heaven and lights the, the offering, then we know that that is the true God. So the prophets, or uh, Ahab and the Baal prophets agree to this, and um, Elijah defers to the prophets of Baal first, so he punts. He's like, you guys can go first. You guys can choose whichever bowl you want out of the two, and you guys are up first to see if this works. So they start early in the morning. They built this altar, and then they start crying out to uh, Baal to bring fire down from the heaven. And at noon, still nothing happened. So after hours had passed, nothing. There's, they're still crying out. Nothing's happening. So what does, what does Elijah do as a good competitor would do? At noon, he starts making fun of them and mocking them, right? A little smack talking going on, right? He's like, Where, where's your God, prophets of Baal? Like, is he on vacation? Is he relieving himself? Is he using the restroom? Why isn't he responding yet? So he's just making fun of them and he's provoking them a little bit. So the prophets of Baal increase the intensity and they start even um, cutting themselves and bleeding uh, their blood on the altar to try to appease this God that doesn't exist. And uh, uh, just a side note, like that's, that's a true sign of false religion when it requires some kind of other blood other than the blood of Jesus Christ, right? blood of Christ is enough, all right? So they, they start cutting themselves. They keep on crying out to their God, Baal, and there's nothing, and it goes on all afternoon, and finally uh, the buzzer runs out on their opportunity. And then it's, so at best they can tie, right? So now it's Elijah's turn, and he comes, and he prepares the altar. He does a few things differently, all right? He, uh, he builds his altar, and then he puts some stones, 12 stones around the altar, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and then he builds a trench around it as well. But then he also calls them to gather four large jugs of water, not once, not twice, but three times to dump it out on the altar, all right? 
So this altar, this sacrifice that was going to be made is swimming, right, in water, right? And it's kind of like, I'm thinking of my Thanksgiving plate, like, was swimming in gravy, right? It was saturated, right? Same with this altar, this offering is saturated. And Elijah wanted to make sure that the people knew that this wasn't some random spark that started this altar or this offering on fire. He wanted to make sure that this was for sure a God moment. Like, the people could not deny that this was God lighting it. So he saturated this wood, saturated the altar. Um, and then he cries out to the heavens, to God, for fire. And there is not a moment that goes by, right? It's not an hour later, not, you know, a little bit later in the day. It's like immediate fire from the sky comes and lights the altar, the offering and fire. And it says the, the intensity of that fire was so hot that it licked up the water. It means that it was so hot that that water just all immediately evaporated. It was gone. Then he turns to the crowd, who is God? Right? Kind of one of those rhetorical questions that's more of a statement. Like, now you guys know. So Elijah then uh, commands the people to seize the prophets of Baal, all four, 450 of them because um, they were worshiping false gods and they were put to death. Elijah, uh, then at the end of chapter 18, after the prophets of Baal uh, were killed, then um, he prays again, not this time for a drought to happen, but he prays again that rain would return after three and a half years. And um, God answered his prayer and brought, brought rain to the nation of Israel. So yes, we would say Elijah surely did some things. Now, Elijah must have been flying high at this point, right? The prophets of Baal are gone. Uh, the nation of Israel now knows who the real God is and who they should worship. The drought has ended. He must have been on cloud nine right now. It was the outcome that he had hoped for. So Elijah returns to the city where Jezebel is at, all right? Now, a prophet of God would not usually go to the city where Jezebel is at, right? Because in that city is where Jezebel killed all the prophets of God, had them brought there and would have them executed, right? So um, Elijah is walking to the city where Jezebel is at, not in fear, but with some confidence. I think he's expecting something different. I think he's expecting to be received well, like, oh, we know now who the real God is now. And, oh, thank you for calling out to God and bringing back the rain. And he's thinking he's going to be accepted. He's walking with some swag into that city, right? thinking that Jezebel is not going to react the way that she has in the past. Then we see in verse 2, it says, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of the one of them by this time tomorrow. That is, the, the life of the prophets of Baal. Here, uh, Jezebel sends... Elijah, basically, a death sentence. She vows to kill him. Not the response, not the outcome now that he hoped for. Verse 3, Then he was afraid, and he arose, and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Elijah's response to Jezebel is one of fear. Think of that. This is the guy who just before was before 450 prophets, and he was all by himself, and he was taunting them, mocking them, making fun of them, and God delivered a huge victory to him. And now he's afraid? Sometimes it's not the army of men, but the one woman. Now there's a lot of uh, 
application or smug comments I can make to that phrase, but I'll refrain because I live with one woman and uh, that would be not staying true to the text. Um, I don't want my life, wife coming after me for my life after the service, so I'll put away all my jokes. Um, it's interesting though, Elijah doesn't challenge like her in the same way the prophets of Baal, right? He's not like, hey, let's just have a showdown at Mount Carmel. I know God's going to show up again. Said he's afraid because it wasn't the outcome that he was expected. He was led by fear, and it said that he went to Beersheba, which is about 80 miles away from where he was at. He, he literally was running scared at this point. Verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat under a broom tree. Broom tree is just like those old-fashioned brooms with uh, like straw on them or whatever, kind of like old-fashioned, and then it looks like a Looks like a broom tree, looks like one of those brooms placed upside down in the ground. They don't have a lot of shade, a lot of foliage to offer anything, but they're, you can find them in the wilderness. And he sat under that tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Another translation, instead of saying, It is enough, says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life so that I can die. When we think uh, that if God is working in and through me, that somehow I'll no longer have a rough day. This is Elijah. God was in, working in and through him, and now he was praying that he might die. This is kind of a scary prayer uh, for multiple reasons, but thinking about, like, man, when Elijah prays, like, God answers, right? Drought happened, rain happened, fire from heaven happened. Now he's praying that he might die, that the Lord would take his life. This is a real prayer. This is a real conversation he's having with God. He's not worried about sounding right to God at this point. He's just being real. Things aren't getting better, or things are not going better, God. They, would, they didn't listen to my ancestors. They didn't listen to my fathers. Why are they going to change now? Why is the people of Israel, they're going to still be unrepentant. They're going to still follow their own ways, their own God. Like, I give up. Why are they going to listen to me? I just want to die. I've had enough, is what Elijah is thinking. Maybe some of you can relate uh, to dark days. Going from fear to despair. Maybe some of you are there right now. Maybe this week was hard. It was hard for you to be thankful no one knows what I'm going through. I've had enough. I think of my own life, where I've been in similar places. I, I think of others. I've had a conversations in similar places. And my heart goes out for you right now, if you're in that, in that spot right now. Reality is we're not immune from despair, disappointment, fear, destruction, brokenness. None of us are. In this dark passage, we see Elijah's perspective. Somehow is a little right yet, in the sense of, like, he asked the Lord to take his life. He's like, my life's not for the taken. I plead with you, Lord. It's your life. Will you take it? I think it's important from, uh, we can see from the life of Elijah and how we can slip into a season of darkness. How we can slip into a season of darkness. No one ever wants to be in a season of darkness right? I think we all can say we've either been there, we are there, or we'll probably be there at some point. And it's a slip into. It comes upon us quick. We don't even realize that we got there. All of a sudden, we're just like, how did I get here? 
and we kind of slip into it. It takes us off guard. From the life of Elijah, I think uh, there's many ways that you can slip in a, a season of darkness um, other than what we see this morning, but we're just going to take from the life of Elijah how he slipped into a season of darkness. Number one, after a spiritual victory, right? Here God had uh, delivered Elijah in a great and miraculous way. I feel like Elijah is here um, in the end zone doing his little touchdown celebration, right? And all of a sudden, like, somebody from the other team just comes up and blindsides him, right? Hits him on his back, and he's like, what just happened? Isn't that true of us sometimes after a big spiritual victory in our lives? It's like when we have our guard down, we're like, yeah, God did it. And then we let our guard down, and then all of a sudden, bam, something happens, and we get blindsided. We've got to be on guard, Right? Satan knows when the best time is to attack. And I think of even, man, just praying over a connect register a couple weeks ago, uh, somebody who uh, just got baptized a couple uh, in September and just like, man, you can tell they're just going through a dark season right now, right after a spiritual victory, right? How can I slip into a season of darkness sometimes after feeling threatened? This is insecurity, right? Was Elijah, did she, he feel threatened? Yeah, Jezebel sure threatened his life, right, to take his life. We can feel threatened by um, another person, somebody in our small group, or maybe an employee or employer, maybe it's our spouse. Maybe we feel threatened by a life circumstance, whether that's cancer or maybe potential losing a job. There's a lot of things that we can feel threatened by, and it brings about this sense of insecurity, and that can lead us to a dark spot. After intense output, we see this with Elijah, man. He's just going, 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 flying high, Everything seems to be going right for him. He's just pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, and then all of a sudden exhaustion, right? Even the amount of, uh, amount of time he traveled, eight, or, uh, 80 miles, he's just exhausted. Ever got to the point where you're just going at 110%, realize that's not actually very healthy. And then all of a sudden you're just exhausted. You can go into a deep uh, season of darkness after intense output. After being isolated, loneliness, Elijah's been, uh, since all the other prophets God were already killed, right? He had to go through some loneliness. It's just me. I'm alone with the voices in my head. And have you been there? It's like, oh man, no one gets what I'm going through. And you're up at night, and it's just you and the voices in your head, and it's not a good spot to be. After realizing the struggle continues, this is fear. Elijah, he thought, I think he thought it was over, right? That's why he's returning to the city. And then he gets there, and it doesn't get the result that he wanted from Jezebel. And he's like, what? This has to keep on. I thought, this was, I thought God's people would all return, and they would be worshiping the true God, and I'd be accepted. And, and uh, the struggle continues. brings about this fear. Fear of what the future holds. Fear, can I go on? After dwelling on negative thoughts, this can be depression, right? Here we see Elijah not... Um, as he's sitting under his broom trees, not remembering what God had just done. He's remembering the negative, right? And it's the word dwell, right? He's dwelling on it. He's consumed by it. These people will never change. My ancestors, my fathers, well, they've tried. No one else has succeeded in the past. They're going to keep on doing their own thing. And he's dwelling on the negative. How many restless nights? How many times do you think and you just are stuck into the negative? You can't see the positive because the negative is just too heavy right now. 
Those are how we can slip into darkness, but the rest of the message is going to be how I can start stepping out of the darkness, right? This is the hopeful side of things. This is where God starts working and moving us forward, and there's three steps here, and this is not meant to be a three-step process. This isn't like, take these three steps and call me in the morning, all right? We even see from the life of Elijah, it took him a while to get out of this season of darkness. It wasn't weeks, it wasn't even months, it was longer than that, all right? But these are just some three ways that we can see from the life of Elijah that helped him start moving the right direction. Does that make sense? So it's a progress. It's a process. And we can learn from the life of Elijah to somebody who was at the point of, like, wanting to die. All right? Verse 5 says, And he lay down and slept under this broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him. And he said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was... Uh, at his head a cake uh, baked and some hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and lied down again. And the angel of the Lord, a little bit more clarity there, right? Not just an angel, but the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great. And he rose and he ate and he drank. And he went in the strength of the food for 40 days and 40 nights to Hebrew, the mount of God. Elijah exhausted, and at the end of the rope, he lies down to sleep. I think he lied down to sleep hoping that he would never wake up again. He was done. He had enough. He desired to be released from the intensity of his situation. But what was God's response? What was God's response? God sends Elijah an angel, all right? Not to rebuke him, right? Not to say, what are you thinking? Look at all everything God just did for you. He doesn't go and kick him. He doesn't hurl insults at him. The angel just comes, and he just leans over, and he just touches him. And he says, arise and eat. And then he leaves him alone. And then the angel comes again, and the second time it says, the angel of the Lord, we get some more clarity here. This isn't just any normal angel that's coming. Right? It's the angel of the Lord. And a lot of theologians believe, um, I can hold true to this as well, that we believe that the angel of the Lord is actually the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Right? This isn't just any angel. This is God himself showing up to ministering to Elijah. And he's coming. And he's like, I love you so much. And he just tells him the same thing. He touches him. Rise and eat. Right? I have this journey for you. Be prepared. What a gentle, loving way that our Savior, Jesus Christ, deals with us when we just had enough. This is a simple uh, message that is given by the angels, by Jesus Christ, a simple deed, but yet an expression of the love God felt towards Elijah at his darkest moment. The care God was able to strengthen uh, was able to strengthen Elijah to stain him for the journey to move forward. For 40 days, it says. So how can I step out of a season of darkness? When you've had enough, allow Christ to be enough. When I've had enough, Christ is the one who makes the next move. Right? And I just simply need to allow him to care for me, to love me in a very gentle and compassionate way. And I, I can think of, uh, like I said, I've been in seasons of 
uh, darkness, and I don't, don't think any of us are immune to that. I think 2017 was a rough year for the person's household. I'll spare you the details, but like some things didn't go as what we expected, kind of like in the life Elijah's story. Things didn't end up the way he hoped for or was expected, right? And some things kind of were broken and that kind of stuff, and we found ourselves in the season of darkness. And uh, by God's grace and how he loved us back from that, right? He dealt with us gently. He guided us. He provided. He did all these things, and we really felt his presence at times, right? That touching effect, right? We felt him touch us in different ways. We're like, don't worry. You're okay, right? Leading us. What are you running from? Are you running from something or someone this morning? Are you wiped out? Are you at the point of wanting to give up? Are you still able to see that how God wants to care for you in your weakness, that he can be strong? Right? He talks about that in Second uh, Corinthians 9 where it talks about like when we are weak, he is strong. His grace is sufficient for us. Right? When I've had enough, I can allow Christ because he is enough. When life squeezes hard, where do you look for relief? There's a lot of things I look for uh, to relief from the season of uh, despair, season of darkness. But it's only Christ that's going to allow me to walk through that. So how can I step out of season of darkness? Number one, when you've had enough, allow Christ to be enough. Let's get our next one from verses 9 through 14. It says, There he came to a cave and lodged in it. This was after 40 days. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? It's interesting. When uh, we're in a season of darkness, we always we t- tend to find a place to dwell in the darkness, right? So Elijah chooses a cave. It's kind of like an expression of how he's feeling. I just want to go in this cave. For me, my dark spot's the basement. That's where I kind of hide out when things are, life's pressing in a little bit harder, where I can isolate myself. Where's your place of isolation? God asked him, what are you doing here? That seems to be a logical question. Now, um, knowing God, he's all-knowing, right? So he already knows the answer of why Elijah's there. Um, God, sometimes God asks us a question not for his benefit, for, for our benefit, right? Because there's something up in our hearts. He's drawing out Elijah's heart here. And then in verse 10, it says, And he said, this is Elijah, I've been very jealous for the Lord, <coughs> the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenants and throw down the altars and killed the prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. When God is drawing out uh, your heart, the best response it always isn't some kind of packaged religious statement or prayer. Sometimes, you know, even as a parent, like, as I'm trying to understand my kid's heart, which is sometimes hard to do, right? Sometimes the best times I can really understand their heart or get to the heart is when they're actually tearful, right? And all study knows is, and then I can understand what they're asking their daddy, what they desire of their daddy, and I can understand what they really want, right? And I think that's what Elijah is rolling up to his heavenly father. Snotty nose, right? Tears. And just like, this is what it is, Lord. This is what's on my heart. What he says is clear, it's concise, it's extremely real. He shares with the Lord what he thinks he is lacking. It's okay to talk to the Lord with being a little upset at times, with 
expressing disappointment or asking questions or with tears. Permission's granted to do those. Think of the Psalms, right? How the Psalms are written. Those are written with emotional charge behind them, I would say. And I think the Lord wants us to talk, roll up to him in that way as well. Verses 11 through 12, it says, And, uh, and he said, Go, this is the Lord um, instructing Elijah, Go outside and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke it into pieces, the rocks before the Lord. And the, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after an earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a low whisper. God prompts Elijah um, here to step out of the, the cave. Staying in the cloud of darkness is not where you can see God clearly. So God says, come out of the cave. And then God causes a wind, earthquake, and a fire all to pass by. But it says God was not in, in them at all. When he stepped out, of the, uh, stepped out of the darkness, we can see God clearly at work without him even saying a word. Right? Even though God wasn't speaking to him through those things, he was saying something through those acts. When we remain in the uh, cave in the darkness, it becomes all-consuming. And seeing God at work is nearly impossible. We feel like God's not at work at all, when he really is. God is reminding here Elijah of his greatness. Like, Elijah, you think you have a big problem? What'd you do? But remember, I'm bigger, Right? Earthquake, fire, wind. How do you see God working outside your cave of darkness? Are you able to come to Celebration Sunday last week and still celebrate and say like, man, I don't see God right now, or I can't hear God in my life, but I can see him at work? Or come to baptisms in September and be like, oh, I can see God working, or go to small group and see and hear how God's working. And others, this requires me coming out of the cave of darkness to witness those things. Verse 13, when you, then it says, uh, when Elijah heard, this is the low whisper, he wrapped his face in the cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave and behold, there was the voice uh, said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? When God uh, gets done displaying his uh, power through those uh, three things, Elijah then slips back into the cave. God comes again, and this time in a low whisper, God had to tell him, God had to tell Elijah to step out of the cave the first time. But the second time, when Elijah hears the low whisper of the Lord, he comes out on his own. He was drawn to the voice of the Lord. How the voice of the Lord is so endearing to those who are despairing. Man, I just want to hear from God. I'm just in this really bad spot. I just want to hear something clearly. And it draws us to him. The loudness of God at first was pretty cool through those three things, right? To remind uh, Elijah of God's greatness. But it was clear that even if he believed that God was great, by God's first display, he still felt, Elijah still felt the same way about himself, and he was still in the spot of despair. But God encounters, that's the word, encounters Elijah a second time, but this time in a low whisper. That truly captivates Elijah's heart. Again, the Lord asks the same question, why are you here? And Elijah gives the same, snotty, tearful response. 
But God's approach this time is much gentler. And it's going to help Elijah take that step forward out of the darkness. How does God whisper then? How does he speak to you and me, even when we're in our dark spot? I think uh, the primary way he does that is through the word. And I know when I'm in a dark season, like that's the last place I want to like sometimes open my Bible and read. You know what? I don't want to do that. But if we open up our word, and sometimes it takes multiple times, right? One day in the dark season, I might open the word and feel like he doesn't speak to me at all, to be honest. Another day might be the same way and not hearing anything, Lord. I'm open up my Bible. But then there's that one day that comes. And it comes like that low whisper, right? That's what he wanted to tell me. That's how he wanted to love me. That's what I needed to hear at this moment, right? And he adheres myself to my heart. I'm ready to take that step forward. So how can I step out of this season of darkness? When I've had enough, allow Christ to be enough. Number two, as we see from this text, be real with God. Snotty nose, tearfully, be real with God and encounter him. He wants to call you out of that cloud or cave of darkness, right? To encounter his greatness, his magnitude, but also to hear in the low whisper as well. When was the last time you had a real, tearful, study nose, ugly conversation with the Lord? What is in your heart that's keeping you in a dark spot if you're there? What do you need? You need to have a frank talk with the Lord. Are you watching for how God is going to meet, work, and encounter you? Don't uh, walk back into the cave of darkness. Stand and look for how God is working in your life in big ways. Listen to how he's going to guide you in a gentle and loving way through the word. In your lowly, lonely state, horizontally connect with him vertically. Sometimes uh, God <clears throat> allows horizontal loneliness for vertical intimacy. That's what we see with Elijah right here. Sometimes God allows vertical loneliness where he strips everything away for vertical intimacy. When God strips away everyone and everything is when uh, he makes himself the most known to us. Utter dependence leads to utter surrender, leads to utter restoration. God is like, you're finally broken, not because he's broken us, but we got into a spot where we're utterly broken and we have nowhere to turn but to him. Elijah didn't need um, at this time to go around telling others about God's goodness and about his love. He needed God to remind him that he is loved and he needed God to minister to him during this season. How can I step out of uh, this season of darkness? We already talked about two different ways. Let's look at the final way, verses 15 through 18. And the Lord said to him, Go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria, and Jehu to be son of Nisha, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Sophat, of Abel-Malaya, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. 
and the one who escapes the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I, leave, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Here God gives uh, Elijah a new partner, Elisha. Here he's feeling all alone, and God's like, no, I'm going to give you, in this low whisper, he's like, I'm going to give you a new partner. I'm going to give you Elisha. I'm going to give you a new purpose. And he tells him, go and do these things. And he gives them a new people. He's like, I'm going to give you 7,000 people that haven't bowed to Baal that you can still minister and work with. New partner, new purpose, and a new people. When things don't go the way we hope for, um, it is easy to let the situation or circumstance define us. We try to be, fix our brokenness, at least that's what I try to do, and fix what's broken instead of moving forward from it. It's easier to stay in the darkness than it is easier to stand up and walk. Here God uh, gives Elijah a renewed reason to live. Partner, purpose, and a people. I've found uh, when I'm counseling people in a state of darkness, um, you know, what they don't need is another plan, right? Planning is just overwhelming. Uh, what they need is a purpose and a reason to live, get up and live. It has been said, uh, the louder the pain, the louder the testimony. God is going to use our pain, our place of darkness, uh, to have a louder testimony for him. And in that, we'll find hope and a reason to live. Right? I think of the Cohen situation, which most of you are familiar with, with uh, the passing of uh, Kendall's sister unexpectedly. And that would have been an easy time for them to slip into a spot of despair, right? That wasn't expected, and that's not what we thought. That's not what we hoped for. That's not what we envisioned. Been easy to. But yet still grieving, taking that platform, that opportunity uh, to have a louder testimony, to share the work of Christ with others, was how they could keep themselves from slipping in that spot of darkness. So how can I step out of darkness? Number three, replace your brokenness with a renewed reason to live. Replace your brokenness. Don't try to fix what's broken. Elijah didn't go after and try to restore his relationship with Jezebel or Ahab. All right, He didn't throw a fit. He's like, okay, um, I need to move forward. And God, in that low whisper, give him a renewed reason to live. There's a saying that goes that hurt people hurt people. And that is certainly true. And this totally helps us understand uh, why sometimes uh, somebody that we love who's hurting sometimes then hurts us, right? And we can have the opportunity to respond in mercy, not giving them what they deserve in response. But I think, you know, God, even though hurt people do hurt people, I think God uh, expects us in our brokenness and our hurt to help people. That hurt people would help people. That in our hurt, in our dark place, that we, uh, in our, in our hurt and dark place that we don't become hammers to those around us, right? Well, I'm hurting, and then everyone else needs to hurt too. Instead, out of our weakness and vulnerability, we can help others who are also hurting. I think of Christ, like when he was in his darkest hour of suffering upon the cross, his eyes were less fixed on him and more upon those who still were around him. 
He still that needed help, that needed the gospel, that needed to show, be shown love, compassion, and mercy. I don't always, I won't always feel like it. I always don't want to. But when I do, when I make the choice, I can find a new, renewed reason to live and to keep moving forward. Are you trying uh, to fix your brokenness? Are you uh, placing your hopes in the past or the present situation that are just going to get better? Are you pursuing a, a clear reason to live from the Lord through his word? What does it look like for you to step out of uh, it and move forward in newness? What are the things in your life that are truly worth living for, therefore you cannot afford to stay in the darkness or where you're at? Could you be a person, um, a hurt person that helps people, that can, fulfills the mission of Jesus Christ and to give life? So in conclusion, uh, how can I uh, step out of a season of darkness, number one, when you've had enough, allow Christ to be enough? Number two, be real with God and encounter him. Number three, replace your brokenness with a renewed reason to live. Our response to the message this morning is going to be uh, twofold. One is we're going to have our ushers up here to collect the tithes, and they're going to be standing up here and you're going to bring your tithes. And what a great way to remember, um, Lord, uh, you are the reason that I live, and you deserve even our first fruits, right? And you can tithe, and you can come forward as the band is playing and we're worshiping and come and give your tithe. The second way that we're going to respond to the message this morning is through communion. And... Uh, whether you're in a dark spot or not, um, this is a way that we can be grateful and thankful for the work of Christ. And if, we're, if you're currently in that dark season, like, community is a great way to remind you, like, I do have a reason to live. It's Jesus Christ. Not anything else, not my situation, not my circumstance. I can have a reason to live. It's through the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And you can take some time to pray and consider the elements and what he did and uh, get your perspective renewed this morning, reason to live. And if you're not in a, currently a dark, or dark season, praise the Lord. Um, it might be coming, but this is also a time for you to reflect and be joyful and uh, pray for others and then pray for your own heart that you would always be mindful of what God has called you to do and have a clear reason to live. So as the worship band plays, you're going to come up, give your tithes. As the worship band plays, don't worry for anyone to come up. Grab your communion, grab the bread, take the cup, take it back to your seats, and then take it as the Spirit leads, all right? Have a real conversation with God, encounter Him, have that, and then as the worship uh, song is playing, take communion just at your seats where you're at. Let me pray. Lord, uh, man, I'm just so grateful that we can come to you just as we are. Um, you don't have a huge expectation for us to come all proper and um, in a fake way to you. You want us to be real. And uh, I just pray, Lord, that we would have those conversations with you where our hearts are really at for our benefit, Lord. And uh, that we're not ashamed when we're going through a season of darkness, but Lord, that we're pressing in and that 
you would respond in a low uh, in a low whisper, that you would respond, that you reach out and touch us and care for us only like that you can do, Lord. That you take our hands and you walk us out of that season of darkness. Lord, I pray uh, we leave here with a renewed reason to live. That is Jesus Christ, Lord. Thank you for the shed blood and the broken bones upon the cross, Lord, that we may have life and have it abundantly. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.